You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, then please share our episodes on social media, like our Facebook page, or just tell a friend about us. But if you really like what you hear, why not vote for us in the British Podcast Awards? Just go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote, search for Polling Matters, that's the one with the graph, and give us your vote in the Listener's Choice Awards. It takes 30 seconds, and shortlisted podcasts will feature on the Guardian website. So you'd really be helping us out, and really be helping us to grow our audience too. So it would be very much appreciated. But for now, thanks for listening, and on with this week's show. You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. It's the 15th of March, 2017. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, on this week's show, we're going to be focusing on the prospect of a second Scottish independence referendum. Very much feels like the big story of the week. Who wouldn't look forward to one of those again? Um, Earlier this week, Nicola Sturgeon indicated that she would ask the Scottish Parliament for permission uh, to call one at the time of her choosing, although that's not likely for another year or two. However, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, says no, accusing the SNP of playing politics and essentially saying that now is not the right time for another independence referendum, given that Britain is about to start the process of leaving the European Union. Now, on today's show, I'll be speaking to Ailsa Henderson from the University of Edinburgh about why the First Minister made the speech that she did this week, what happens now, and what a second independence referendum in Scotland might look like in practice. Also on this week's show, you will hear the second part of my chat with Mick Fealty of Slugger O'Toole on Northern Ireland. Now, listeners to last week's show will know that Mick and I spoke at length about the recent Assembly elections in Northern Ireland and what would happen now, in the short term at least, in terms of a power-sharing agreement. Well, we also went on to speak about the longer term for Northern Ireland, the impact of Brexit, but also whether Ireland ever would be uh, united. And uh, you'll hear that conversation at the end of this week's show. But before we crack on, um, a couple of bits of business. One of the stories that we've heard today is that Philip Hammond has been forced into something of a humiliating climb down over his plans to raise national insurance contributions um, for some self-employed workers. Now, there was obviously a backlash uh, prompted by this. The Tories would have been breaking a manifesto uh, promise. I don't know if many of you have seen, but David Cameron was spotted uh, indicating his displeasure, shall we say, uh, by lip readers. And, you know, it very much was a sort of controversial um, element of the budget, one that in normal times might very well have caused a real problem for the government. But I must admit, I'm somewhat surprised that the government's rode back on this, given their position in the polls, um, anywhere between 15 to 20 points ahead of Labour. It doesn't feel like they're under much pressure from the opposition um, to row back. And I was looking at some of the polling from YouGov following on from the budget, so this would be uh, sort of field work that went from the 8th to 9th of March, again, conducted by YouGov. And about the budget, when people were asked, um, thinking of the country as a whole, do you think the budget will leave the country better off, worse off, not make, not make much difference or don't know, um, 49% said that it would not make much difference. And then when asked about themselves and their families specifically, 55% said it would not make much difference. So it didn't feel like a budget that was going to unravel and become very, very problematic for the government, not least given Nicola Sturgeon, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's speech followed it. And, and we know that there's other things going on later in the month of Article 50 being invoked. So I am surprised that they've chosen to row back on this. It creates negative headlines 
um, for the government at a time when it was almost, maybe not forgotten, but certainly um, out of the immediate news cycle uh, following uh, events in Scotland. But maybe there was pressure from the uh, Conservative Party backbenchers and a sense that maybe they uh, made a mistake by uh, sort of um, sacrificing one of the uh, 2015 manifesto pledges. Who knows? But that's the big story today. Very embarrassing for Philip Hammond. And I wonder what it says about the government's ability to stay the course during Brexit negotiations uh, if they U-turn so quickly over something like this. I guess we shouldn't extrapolate too much from it, but it will certainly be something to watch out for in the future. But anyway, on with this week's show, so the bulk of which is me speaking to Ailsa Henderson from the University of Edinburgh, as I've mentioned. Now, a bit more about Ailsa before we crack on. Ailsa is the Head of Politics and IR, uh, International Relations, that is, at the University of Edinburgh. And she also was the Principal Investigator for the uh, Scottish Election Study of 2016 and the Scottish Referendum Study of 2014. So so obviously, um, Ailsa is a great person to speak to about all sorts of uh, subjects, Scotland related. And we spoke for about 20 minutes about why Nicola Sturgeon uh, is calling for this referendum this week, um, what a a second referendum campaign might look like in practice, and what the polls tell us uh, about what the result may or may not be. And uh, you're about to hear that conversation now. And as I mentioned, I started off by asking Elsa, why now? Yeah, I mean, I I suspect the only one who really knows is is Nicola Sturgeon, but I, I suspect there's a couple things going on. One is, I think, probably... It's a function of timing, as you know, as she says, she wants uh, Scottish voters to have more specifics about the EU deal. We don't really know what's going on at the moment, and and yet not hold it so late that we, you know, entry possible entry into the EU or retaining the membership in the EU is is uh, is harder or impossible. So I think I, I think she's probably correct, or or she's probably clearly stating her aims when when she explains why she wants the timing the way it is. I think it's also. A function of, of support for independence increasing in, in recent opinion polls. I think it's also a reaction to what is beginning to take shape in terms of, uh, uh, what Brexit's gonna look like. You know, there is unease in Scotland about the fact that Scots voted to remain, but also that the Brexit we're seeing is a hard Brexit. It's uh, departure from the single market. It's, you know, unease about the way EU citizens uh, are, are being treated, but also discussions about uh, immigration and how international students are going to be factored in. And I think also another thing that's possibly driving it is is the UK's perceived attitude to Scotland. And it's not just national politicians like, like Nicola Sturgeon claiming that the UK hasn't really included the devolved administration's in what's going on, there is a seeming ambivalence um, from the UK government to uh, to what the consequences of Brexit will be for Scotland, but also for Northern Ireland. And I and mm. I think that's you know all, obviously those are all linked, but I think that is connecting with what we're seeing in the polls. Sure, and regular listeners to this show will know that I, I'm particularly concerned, um, obviously concerned about Scotland, but particularly about Northern Ireland, given the fractured history there. Um, I mean, let's talk a bit about public opinion. You mentioned. Um, that there's been a, something of a shift in favour of, uh, of independence. I was looking at, so there's obviously been a, a barrage of polling out in the last few days, and for the benefits of listeners who maybe haven't seen some of that, so YouGov came out of a poll which had yes on 43, no on 57. That's obviously with don't knows excluded. Fieldwork there, 9th to the 14th of March. Um, Servation have come out of one as well, yes 47, no 53, which was all done... Uh, the field work was all done after Nicola Sturgeon's speech, and there was zero change uh, from September. And then that sent have this survey 
very different sort of random probability survey between July and December, I believe, which has support for independence at 46%, which is the highest it's ever been in their survey. So, I mean, lots of data, as you mentioned at the beginning, out there. I mean, what, what do you make of, of, of that specifically on the question of independence? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things to do there. One is to look at the different polling firms and see, right, well, is there any reason to believe that one of those might be uh, might be high, might be overestimating yes support or might be overestimating no support? And if, and if you look at the polls immediately before the 2014 referendum result, the polling firms were in the ballpark. They were all in the, in, in the margin of error. So there's no reason to think that there's some sort of systematic bias in the in the answers we're getting. So that's one thing. The other thing is, look, the you know the the claim was that if there is a referendum, it will be held sometime between autumn 2018 and spring of 2019. So last referendum, and we're in March 2017. Last referendum was autumn 2014. So if we want to understand where we are and what might happen in a campaign, then I think what we have to do is look back to the polls in you know January, February, March, April of 2013, and see what they were saying about yes and no support. And if you look at those you see markedly different numbers. So YouGov wasn't polling on the issue until August of 2013. They had yes at 29%. TNS in February 2013 had it at 33%. Ipsos had it at, at 32%. So the, the, even the worst results for yes are substantially ahead of what they were uh, at this stage out of the last referendum. So they're starting from um, a much higher base. So, so we know that p the opinion moved a lot um, in, in even from early 2014 to autumn 2014. Do, do we have reason to believe that the same scale of increase might occur n now? You know, not necessarily, I think. And, and one thing we look at is not just the yes-no question, but the scales that we see sometimes. So when we were doing polling, we were asking about independence, not just yes-no, but on a minus 10 to plus 10 scale. Ipsos recently had support for independence on a 1 to 10 point scale. Before the referendum in 2014, everybody was out at the edges. You had this U-shaped curve of supporters of independence right at the very end of the scale and supporters of the union right at the other end of the scale and basically no one in the middle. And if we expected to see substantial movement and change, we would have expected that post-Brexit we would see movement towards the middle of that scale and, and we're just not seeing it. So yes... They're starting from a must higher base, and yes, there was a substantial increase towards yes in the last year before the referendum in 2014, but there are reasons to believe that we won't see the same scale of movement in this referendum. That, that was, I mean, you've answered my question. I was about to ask, uh, you know, how important is it that they're coming from a higher base uh, this time? I suppose the, the question really becomes, with any of these things, whether it's the Remain versus Leave debate in the wider UK and... Uh, yes versus no in Scotland. It's all about the people that voted no last time, isn't it? Um, one of the one of the arguments that people make for why there's been a material change in, in Scotland's uh, relationship with the rest of the UK and why opinion might change is about Brexit. Um, how important do you think this EU question is, though, to the debate? Because I was looking at some data from uh, ScotSend that has 67% of Scots Eurosceptic, which means either they want to leave or they want less powers from the EU. That's up from seven. That's up seven points from 60% in 2015. So it feels like even in Scotland, um, which voted to remain, Euroscepticism has increased after the um, after the Brexit vote. So 
it paints a confusing picture for me. I mean, how do you, how important do you think this remain versus leave debate really is in the in the independence question? Yeah, I, I think it's very important, but I think it's it's moving in different directions. So there's a couple of things going on. One is that you know there is a claim that Scottish attitudes are are distinct, that they're more left wing, more meritocratic, more communitarian. But if you actually go picking for robust evidence of that, you typically don't find it. And the same is true to a certain extent about attitudes to Europe. So the Future of England survey that we do, we were polling in England and Scotland and Wales, and we had this battery of Euroscepticism. And we found that on some of the measures, the attitudes of Scots and those living in England and Wales was indistinguishable. They are, Scots have always been as Eurosceptic as voters in England and in Wales, but they come to just different conclusions when they enter, um, when they enter the polling booth. Uh, so, you know, and it's the same with, uh, same similar core values. You know, they come to different conclusions when it time, comes time to cast ballots. In elections, so the the, the fact that Scots are Eurosceptic is of no surprise to me at all. They always they always have been. They've been as um, questioning about some of the benefits of the European Union as as voters elsewhere. So that's one thing we know. But the other thing we know is that in 2014, attitudes to the European Union and the perceived risk of Scotland finding itself out of the European Union was a significant predictor of support for both. Yes. And no. So people voted yes. Yes, voters backed independence because they thought that a Scotland in the union would find itself out of the UK because there would be a Brexit vote for leave. But no voters backed the union because they felt that an independent Scotland was unlikely to be able to retain membership in the EU. So it, with everything else that was driving people to vote yes and driving them to vote no, Attitudes to the European Union and, and positive attitudes to the European Union was a significant predictor for both sides. So everyone was was trying to avoid risk and trying to remain within the European Union and casting their ballot in a way that they felt would best guarantee continued membership in the EU. But do you think the actual European question is important to um, to Scots then? Because I, I get one of the things I wonder more generally about the UK, and I, we look at some polling that polling matters have done with opinion on the question of a second referendum on Europe. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for that in, in, in the UK more widely. And I think there's some data from YouGov, I haven't got the figures in front of me, that suggests Scots are particularly are split as well on whether there should be a second referendum on, on Brexit itself. I mean, is, is Europe itself an important thing to Scots, or, or is it like a proxy argument for some of these other things? No, I think it is, a, I think it is an important issue. Uh, in itself, partly on face value, it's an important issue, but I think also because of the way that it aligns with with other attitudes. And the other thing I think that's relevant here is what it's doing in terms of shifting the patterns of support for yes and no. So, uh, you know, the standard story about what happened in the Brexit referendum doesn't quite hold in Scotland. So the argument is older voters back leave. Well, the they, older voters were not significantly more likely to back leave in Scotland, in part because everyone had a, started from a more um, uh, remain, uh, remain base. But what we're seeing when we look at attitudes to referendums and we look at attitudes to independence post-Brexit, we're seeing substantial differences by age. So substantial um, differences in terms of how younger people feel, not just about independence, but about referendums in general. 
So it's not just we're seeing the two, you know, the oldest voters in the electorate and the youngest voters in the electorate moving apart in terms of their constitutional preferences, but also moving apart in support for referendums. And older voters are substantially less likely to support holding referendums, whereas younger voters, you know, those 16 to 35, are significantly more likely to want another referendum. And they're significantly more likely to want independence full stop, aren't they, I believe, younger voters. What do you think is behind some of that? That's a really interesting uh, finding for me. Well, I suppose part of that has to do with with the standard predictors you identify for why people would vote yes and no. And we know that risk aversion was playing a role in the last referendum. We know that voters who were generally risk-averse and more concerned about uncertainty were more likely to vote no, and the demographic group that is more likely to be concerned about risk as older voters, but also in addition to the kind of general risk aversion, you had very specific risks that people were worried about. We know that risks of being outside the EU was one, but also economic uncertainty and currency risk in particular. People worried about pensions. I mean, the some of the specific risks that were surfacing were ones that were preying on the minds of older voters more than were preying on the minds of younger voters. Well, let's fast forward to a hypothetical campaign. We're not 100% sure on when that might be, I suppose. Um, could be a few years from now. Um, but, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that the dynamics of a future Indy Ref 2 or Scott Ref or whatever you want to call it um, might be, well, they are going to be quite different, aren't they? It's going to be a very different campaign to the uh, one we saw in 2014. Well, yeah, in some ways, yes. and In other ways, no. I mean, I think that the, the Yes side had one big stumbling block or one big risk for them. We know that people who were generally risk-averse were less likely to vote yes. People who were concerned about uncertainty were less likely to vote yes. But also people who were worried about specific risks about the EU and specific risks about currency, whether you could use pound sterling, they were significantly less likely to vote yes. And on the one hand, Brexit changes the, the, the dynamics of that because arguments about, oh, well, you know, a yes vote is a vote for uncertainty and instability, whereas a no is the continuation of the status quo, that argument is so much harder to make after a leave vote where we're facing really, on, you know, you've got two different routes, both of which are uncertain. Uh, so the, the standard argument about risk and stability can't quite be made in the same way. And the, the other thing, I think, um, is that the argument that was the, the kind of risk-focused argument from the yes side, that the union is a risk, that, you know, if you're going to stay in the in the UK, you're going to find yourself out of Europe, you're going to have this big continued gap between rich and poor, that argument can't really be rerun in a straightforward way this time around either, because we've got lots of evidence that suggests that the gap between rich and poor in terms of educational attainment is not narrowing, in terms of access to university places uh, is not narrowing. You know, the poorest in society are, are are not helped by free tuition in the way we might expect. So the claims that were really successful for the yes side in the latter part of that campaign that were drawing voters towards them more as referendum day approached, um, it, you know, it, you see evidence that Nicola Sturgeon in her speech was kind of attempting to start from where she left off in 2014, it's a slightly trickier argument to make now mm-hmm. in light of in light of, of, of data that we have about about um, the gap between rich and poor in Scotland. And thinking about, um, I guess if you're if you're in yes towers and you're trying to you know pick, look at the voters you've got to win over to your side. Obviously, you've got to win over some no voters from last time. 
who do you see as the audiences? I mean, are there any specific audiences that, um, whether demographically or politically, that, that the Yes campaign might be looking ahead to and thinking, yeah, we can win those people over to our argument? Is it young people? Is it men, women, Labour voters? Who, who is it? Yeah, good question. I mean, it, it, there's a gender gap. There's a gender gap that, that remains even when you control for uh, other demographic characteristics. So they, they need to improve their position there. The other thing that matters is place of birth. So we know that uh, people who were born in Scotland were marginally more likely to vote yes. People who were born outside the UK were a bit more likely to vote no. But people who were born outside of Scotland but in the rest of the UK were substantially more likely to vote no. So if you're looking at, and, and this, the, the gap there is significantly larger than the gap between men and women, um, that's going to be a hard conversion for them. In, in terms of the gender gap, there are some signs that there's movement there. So when we were polling uh, in the Scottish election study, we were asking people what impact different Brexit referendum results would have on their constitutional preferences. And it was always clear that a leave vote was going to pull more people from no to yes than yes to no. But for the most part, they were they were cancelling each other out. But if you look at the type of people who are moving, uh, and if you look at people who are consistent yes voters, consistent no voters, yes to no and no to yes, if you look at the demographic profile of that no to yes group, there is evidence that they are really making inroads among women. I think it's 60% of that um, of that group are are women which suggests that Brexit might not be shifting everyone's constitutional preferences, but it is shifting it among some of the demographic groups that they need to tap into if they're to do better than they did last time. Sure. I mean, final couple of questions. Um, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned women there because it does feel like, uh, at least at the moment, that it would, the leaders of the respective campaigns would be women, right? So um, quite differently to last time, Nicola Sturgeon on the SNP side, uh, I mean, Alex Salmon would obviously be very heavily involved, I'm sure, but she would very much be the leader of that campaign. And I suppose on the no side, I, you might disagree, but presumably Ruth Davidson becomes the sort of champion for no. One of the things that struck me is uh, her popularity, which flies in the face of the, the traditional view that the Conservatives are deeply, deeply unpopular uh, in Scotland. But then at the same time, if you were to look at it and say, oh, yes versus no becomes something of a fight between the SNP and the Scottish Conservatives. Not sure, you know, a unionist would like those odds. I mean, what's your take on Ruth Davidson's role in all of this? Because she does seem to be quite popular among Scots at the moment, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the 2016 election, all party leaders were more popular than the party leaders that were in place before 2011, and you saw a substantial increase for the leader of the um, for the Conservative Party. Yeah, she's doing. I mean, she's doing really, really well. And it wouldn't be surprising if you if you had parties that are on the poles of the constitutional issues, so most supportive of independence on the one side, most supportive of the union on the other, taking the lead in any any referendum. That's the kind of thing we would expect um, to see. The, the trouble is, though, that when you have a campaign. That is, that involves more than one political party. It is very difficult to agree on the messaging. And I think that's something that we could see among Better Together in 2014. I think it's something that also bedeviled the Remain campaign in 2016. So yes, you might think, right, here's a, here's a leader capable of, of putting across, um, 
an effective message. Here's a party that's on the rise in the polls. Here's a party that whose tax policies are probably more in line with majority preferences uh, in Scotland. But the thing about a campaign in a referendum is that it involves a negotiation about messaging among different parties. And so you might have a very effective single party, but you've got to reach an agreement with all the others you're working with on what it is you're going to say and what you're going to argue. And I think sometimes that ends up tying your hands. And I think we can we can certainly see that with the Brexit referendum and attitudes to uh, immigration. You would have expected a more robust defense of, of immigration from, from the Remain side. And, you know, from all the books that have been written on it, it suggests that they just couldn't agree on what the messaging was on immigration. And so a very effective argument was never made because the campaign was a coalition. And I think that's a real risk that whatever the Better Together campaign becomes or the No campaign becomes uh, in Scotland. And it's something that's more easily managed, I think, because of the disproportionate weight of the SNP within a Yes Scotland campaign or a Yes campaign. They're not in it alone, but they are so much larger than the other parties that are campaigning alongside them that I think their messaging tends to win the day. It's a good point because um, many in Scottish Labour felt that they were too close to the Conservatives, didn't they, in the past referendum, and uh, I suppose they're not going to be very keen to be sharing platforms with Ruth Davidson or Theresa May even, or whoever it might be, then yeah, that, that, is a, that is a very interesting point. I mean, the million-dollar question in closing, I suppose, is um, what, what <laughs> put you on the spot, but I mean, what do you think would happen in another referendum? I mean, there, it's a really hard one for me to judge personally. I mean, I, I started this week off feeling quite pessimistic about the future of, of the union just because of the, the slightly different dynamics in which the next campaign will be fought, and I'm not, I wasn't convinced that Theresa May could easily... Uh, to deny Scotland or be seen to deny Scotland a, a, a second referendum uh, very easily. But then at the same time, consistent data comes out that suggests there isn't this great shift either uh, from, from no to yes, uh, at least not to put yes ahead. So it's quite a confusing picture being painted. I and mean, what do you think? And what do you think would happen if you had to stick your neck out? Yeah, I'm not going to stick my neck out. <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, we, we look to different things to give us clues. And so um, because of my research, I always look to Quebec and see, right, well, what, what, what might we expect if this is the second referendum we're having? Um, you know, what lessons might we expect from Quebec? There was more of a shift in constitutional preferences in the 1980 referendum, first time round, than there was in the 1995 referendum. I mean, a year and a half out, the polls... For before '95, we're basically showing the the result. Really, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't the same movement that you got the first time round. Um, so that might suspect fairly steady state. That said, I think it's far too early to tell, and I think there's two variables that are going to make a significant difference. One is what on earth is that Brexit deal going to look like? Um, not just in terms of the timing of the Brexit deal, but the details of the deal, access to markets. What what is you know, what, what do the economic fortunes of a UK out of the European Union look like? And the other thing is, how is the UK government going to react to the request for a, a Section 30 order on the referendum? Because I think if there's a hard Brexit um, and, and economic uncertainty and a UK government that refuses a referendum, uh, I would think that that is probably more fertile ground for movement on constitutional preferences than a softer Brexit where at least, you know, there are uh, claims about mm. what might happen to the economy 
and a UK government that says, yeah, okay, on you go. You think you can win it. Let's just see. Mm. Final, final question that's just popped into my head. Um, let's say that there is a second referendum. I mean, I imagine there's going to be, and uh, what the question's about timing. Um, and no wins again. What does that do to Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP? Do you think it's just business as usual, or do you think that that puts them in the the first situation that they felt since they that they faced since their rise, where they're under genuine pressure and maybe their dominance is under threat? Mm. Yeah. Well, there the lessons from Quebec are not particularly positive. You know, I mean, all the evidence suggests you can hold a second referendum, mm. but you can't really hold a third. And and support for um, support for independence in Quebec immediately after '95 went up a little bit, but since then has just fallen through the floor. And I think it's a, in part a function of something beyond the control of, of nationalist politicians and something that is the fault of nationalist politicians, but not in the way you'd expect. So the economic um, uh, crash you know, did, did I think, make voters think twice about independence in Quebec. But, but part of the problem in Quebec is that you've had a series of governments governing with every bit of autonomy that they have and doing a really good job of it. And so I think it's convincing voters that actually, if you use the sovereignty you have, if, if you use your legislative competence wisely, then actually you can enjoy almost as many of the full benefits as, as you would get from from independence, and that's something that the SNP administration in Edinburgh has not done. It has not used its full competences um, that it's been it's been given. It's kind of been governing with one hand behind its back, and so you might think that if they lose a referendum, then at least you would see a change in terms of using the legislative competence that you've got. That was Ailsa Henderson there from the University of Edinburgh. A big thank you uh, to her for sharing some of her insight into what's going on in Scotland. Certainly felt like we covered a lot of ground and a lot of topics, which is fantastic. Um, one of the things that really struck me from that conversation was Ailsa's point about message discipline, which isn't something that I'd uh, considered too, uh, too carefully, really. But it's true. Um, if we think back to the uh, EU referendum campaign, but also the last Scottish referendum campaign, we, we saw how for the status quo campaigns, it was really difficult for them to agree a, a clear message on you know, why people should opt for the status quo, particularly with lots of different actors um, sort of vying uh, for their message to be heard within those campaigns. And it's definitely a good point when you think about even if it is a Ruth Davidson led campaign in the future, um, with sort of Theresa May as prime minister, you know, how the Conservatives and Labour Party of Scotland interact, given the direction that those parties have gone in since the last campaign. Um, will be really interesting and, and how they can get their respective voters out and yet have a unified message. I, I don't know. It doesn't. It's not easy. And it will be certainly something that I think that people that are on the unionist side of Scotland will need to give some careful consideration to. Another point that Elsa kept raising, uh, kept bringing up, was the um, the uh, Brexit vote and the sort of the, the Remain versus Leave dynamic in Scotland, which was also um, sort of fascinating when you consider there is this healthy dose of um, scepticism, uh, of Euroscepticism in Scotland, but at the same time, this notion that Scotland has voted one way, the rest of the UK has voted the other, and that's not fair, and how that plays out in the future will be uh, really interesting, particularly as uh, sort of Article 50 gets invoked and 
the Brexit negotiations begin. But we've got a new poll out on this subject, UK-wide out poll, not, not specifically Scotland, which is tracking a poll we did a couple of months ago with opinion. So in January, we did a survey where the question was, do you think the United Kingdom made the right decision or wrong decision in deciding to leave the European Union? And that was amongst a nationally representative sample. And we found that 52% thought um, Britain had made the right decision and 39% thought that Britain had made the wrong decision with 9% not knowing. Now, I should add, this is uh, on the sort of high side for the right decision, wrong decision split. I think it possibly a house effect of opinion. Um, YouGov have a much closer uh, contest, so I should say that in the interest of full disclosure. However, we've repeated that question in March, uh, so last weekend actually, and uh, you'll see the tables up on the opinion website in due course. And the numbers this time are right decision of 49, wrong decision of 41, uh, don't know, 10. So no real change in don't know, but right decision down three points, wrong decision up two points. Now, we shouldn't get too excited by, by, by these numbers. You know, a three-point rise here, a two-point rise there. It's all not, well, it's not quite margin of error. It's all within that sort of ballpark. So it could be statistical noise, but it's something to keep an eye on uh, to see if there is any uh, any shift over time. If we look at the leave voters, which again would be the people that would have to, to sort of change their mind, wouldn't they? Um, 90% say right decision, uh, the, the Brexit's the right decision versus 93% of leave voters a couple of months ago. Uh, 4% of leave voters say it's the wrong decision versus 3% that said it's the wrong decision a couple of months ago. So so I guess on the side that needs to uh, change its mind, there's, there's not a lot of evidence of that at the moment. But another, another place that is uh, impacted by this Brexit debate is Northern Ireland. Uh, of course, Northern Ireland voted to remain, and yet uh, here we are leaving. And that's as good a time as any uh, for me to introduce our final part of today's podcast, which is uh, the continuation of my conversation with Mick Filty from Slugger at all. Now, uh, if you didn't check out last week's episode and you want to get the lowdown on um, the impact, the Northern Ireland election results and the impact of them, then please do check out last week's episode. Uh, very well received episode, lots of positive comments back from it. So uh, very grateful for those. Um, but this, that was looking at the now, if you like, and, th- and this bit is looking at about six or seven minutes is looking at the future, the future of Northern Ireland following Brexit. But also, is there actually genuinely any possibility of a united Ireland in the future? Um, I mean, who knows after what we've seen in the last couple of years, but uh, we shouldn't jump to the conclusions, of course. But in any case, you're about to hear the um, that, that last seven minutes of that conversation with Mick. That will close out the show, so that'll be this will be the last you hear from me on this episode. But um, as ever, thanks for listening uh, to the podcast. If you like what you hear, please do share it on social media or, or in any way you can. It really is how we get our episode out there. I know I bore regular listeners with this point, but we do still get people that are new to the show that say how much they like it and you know they haven't heard it before, even now after sort of two and a half years. Um, so it does help sharing it. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, if you can see your way to voting for us in the British Podcast Awards for listeners' choice, um, details on, on my Twitter account and at the beginning of this podcast, then uh, please do as well, because if we can get featured on the Guardian website, that will only grow our audience. But for now, I'll leave that all with you. Uh, you're about to hear the final instalment of this week's episode, which is me talking to Mick Filty about the future of Northern Ireland, specifically in the aftermath of Brexit. Thanks for listening. Um, let's talk about the future a bit. Um, so you mentioned Brexit earlier. There is this potential that people talk about of there being a hard border between the north and south. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, how how worried, how concerned are you at some of these institutions unraveling as we as Britain as a whole leaves the European Union? 
Well, I, I don't think Northern Ireland... I mean, I think one of the reasons why London has got complacent, I would say London is not only complacent about Northern Ireland, London is also complacent about Scotland uh, and the politics of what's happening in Wales. So I don't think the threat is that way around. What I think is a huge deficit going forward is that not having a, a Northern Ireland administration to input to that process... And, and, you know, unionist parties would want to input directly into the UK government. And, you know, the Republican side would really want to input directly into the Dublin government. Now, in a sense, this this suits Sinn Féin to, to a degree because Sinn Féin obviously have TDs sitting in the Southern uh, Parliament. So they would say, well, we will use the our authority through the Southern Parliament to kind of input directly into the, as an opposition party, into the government. But I, but I don't think there's anything, you know, who stands for Northern Ireland in all of this? No one. No one official, no one with any authority from, uh, from, from, the, uh, from the base. And okay, the truth is that DUP were the only mainstream party um, as a corporate entity to back Brexit. And Sinn Féin were not, although they weren't actually part of the campaign, they didn't officially register. Their official position is anti-Brexit. That that you know, getting a common a common platform through through which to speak to London would have been difficult. But speaking as first and deputy first minister, uh, there would have at least been somebody there to speak on behalf of Northern Ireland's very very peculiar situa- situation vis-a-vis the United Kingdom leaving um, the European Union. Yeah, and I, I guess the, 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 real, the real concern would be, I mean, not a return to the troubles, as it were, but to, uh, I don't think that that feels very realistic, but, but, to, but to a return to some form of troubles or some, sto- some form of uh, sort of violent instability. I mean, do, do you see that as a concern as well? I know that the organisations that used to be there, and you know, of decommissioned weapons and so on and their organisational structures and that sort of thing. So um, it's hard to see us going back to where we were in the 70s and 80s, but nevertheless, these things can escalate quite quickly if we know anything about the history of, uh, of, of the whole island. I, I, don't see, I don't see that as a, as a direct threat. I think, of course, there are always dissident Republicans around who can be relied on to kind of create a bit of trouble here and there. I, I don't think it's so much that. It's just the vacuum that it creates means that political action is impossible, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know very well uh, the, the problems that the NHS has in, in, in England, for instance. Uh, well, you can, just, you can just times that by two or three in Northern Ireland because, you know, very few of the reforms that came through in the, the, the Brown-Blair era were implemented in Northern Ireland. Very hardly any reorganisation of hospitals the whole idea of centres of excellence, all of that is work that hasn't been done because there hasn't been the political will to grab it by the scruff of the neck and get things done. So there is a drift in Northern Ireland in infrastructure and education and planning. um, And having that absence um, means that people are putting all their efforts into rerunning all the old arguments and not actually getting on with um, fulfilling their ambitions through constitutional politics. Over time, that leaves gaps, that leaves opportunities. So I would, I would tone down any paranoia about it causing anything in the near term, but in the long term, it is highly concerning. And the loss, uh, the loss of ground to the middle ground parties who 
are, who stood in this election on a willingness to work together once they got into government is that really one of the most concerning things mm. that the uh, those guys who make a virtue of not working together and saying that they haven't worked together and they haven't achieved anything for 10 years that is that that ultimately it's not a problem in the short term clearly the electorate have given them uh, a mandate a refresh mandate but over time i think it's not something that can reliably stand mm. and i guess final question i mean on that const- wider uh, constitutional question um, I mean, do you see there is any prospect of Northern Ireland no longer being the UK in one form or another in the future, or do you do you still feel that as long as there is that sort of uh, unionist, unionist majority, then there'll be some version of where we are now for the I don't know the next two decades or so? I, I, I think it's possible. Uh, I think there are enough people in Northern Ireland who want it to happen for it to be possible to happen. I'm not. I'm not particularly sure that polarising and repolarizing the tribal divide is a particularly effective way of going about getting it. Um, the problem is that a, a huge show of strength on the Republican side uh, within Sinn Féin, particularly with Jerry Adams still around. Now, Martin McGuinness is, 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 is very ill, and we're not really sure about the, the, the nature of that, but it does look like he's leaving the scene. And I think even unionists feel that that's a bit of a that's a bit of a problem because he was um, certainly via optics, if if only but via optics, he was seen as a as a as a hand capable of reaching out to ordinary Protestants and unionists. I think this repolarization builds strength, but it generally is only building strength again within the original tribal footprint. Um, it's and it's created a, an apparent strength within republicanism that wasn't there before. It's not several thousands. There's only 8,200, I think, votes between uh, Sinn Féin and the DUP. That plays well in the short term. In the longer term, the United Ireland is only going to come if a significant number of people who currently see themselves as unionists decide that the best possible future is in, uh, is in the United Ireland. And I don't think I don't think we're in in a, a space yet where we've seen a party with a credible a credible strategy um, f- for making that happen. So yes, it's possible, but I think some of the way that politics is being played out um, tactically means that uh, it's not necessarily making it any closer.